Pushkin. Hello, 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 everyone. Malcolm Gladwell here. I hope you're healthy and safe in these strange times. I come offering distraction. And Lord knows we all need a little bit of that right now. So I'm holed up in the countryside outside New York City, where my big news is that I just saw a bald eagle yesterday, which I'm taking as some kind of sign from God. And I'm working away on season five of Revisionist History. And the thought occurred to me because, and I'm going so stir-crazy right now that lots of thoughts are occurring to me, that by the end of this season, we're going to have a total of 50 episodes of Revisionist History on the books. 50! Doesn't that call for some kind of special occasion? You know, back in 2016, I started this show as a lark. My friend Jacob Weisbrook said, just do one season. You can do it in your spare time, which turned out to be a lie. But then so many people tuned in and egged me on that I said, okay, I'll do a second season. And then I did a third. And well, here we are on the verge of season five. And now Jacob and I have even started a company, Pushkin Industries, to spread the podcast love even more broadly. Okay, so here's my big idea. So many of you seem to love writing in with comments and questions that I think we should take a poll. Let's pick the greatest revisionist history episode ever. We're going to post a dozen candidates and you can vote for your favorite. Just go to pushkin.fm and follow the link at the top of the page. And just to kick things off, I'm going to tell you which one I'm voting for and play it for you. Then, in the coming weeks, after we've counted your votes, we'll replay your winning episodes too, along with some new behind-the-scenes material and commentary about these stories from me. All right. My favorite. Drumroll, please. Analysis, Parapraxis, Elvis. The final episode of Season 3. Now, why do I like this one so much? Because the whole episode was totally random. I was reading a book by Gina Perry called Behind the Shock Machine about the famous psychologist Stanley Milgram. A really good book, by the way. And she interviews one of Milgram's former research assistants, a guy named Alan Elms. Gina Perry mentions, I think in a footnote, that Elms had once written a paper on Elvis Presley. He called it 12 Ways to Say Lonesome. And it's all about error and control in the music of Elvis Presley about the fact that Elvis could never remember the words to a critical part of his big hit, Are You Lonesome Tonight? And I thought, oh, it's kind of interesting. So I read the essay, and I went to YouTube, and sure enough, every time Elvis sings that song live, he just mangles the bridge in the middle, which is the emotional heart of the song. But as interesting as this was, it didn't seem like something you could make an entire episode out of. I mean, Elvis forgets lyrics. Big deal. So I kind of forgot about it until I was on the phone with my friend Dave Wirtschafter, who lives in Los Angeles, and is the most magically connected guy of all time. Like, if you gave me an impossible task, can you get Taylor Swift to sing at my niece's birthday party? Or can you get Warren Buffett to look over my 401k? I would just call Dave, and he would somehow make it happen. So I asked Dave, who knows a lot about Elvis? Who could walk me through that song and explain why it's so hard? And Dave says, without missing a beat, well, Jack White could do that. Next thing you know, I'm on a train to Nashville. Mind you, I still don't think there's an episode in there, but I figure, Jack White, how many chances will I get to meet Jack White? And then, 
well, I'm not going to give away what happened when I got there. My point is, everything about reporting that episode was a surprise. I had no idea, none. But after I met all the folks you're about to hear, I thought, holy mackerel, I can't believe what just happened. Not only do I have a show, I think I have a really great show. And the shows that come together by magic are always sweeter than the shows that come together by sweat and tears. Anyway, that's why it's my favorite. Have a listen. The New York Psychoanalytic Society and Institute is in a very formal European-style building on a quiet side street on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Oak tables, high ceilings, in the library long ribbons of leather-bound volumes, and five different busts of Sigmund Freud, all in a row. I went there to meet with the Society's president, Michelle Press, a psychoanalyst herself with that lovely quality of patience and openness the best therapists always have. I wanted to talk with her about a subject that I've always found deeply interesting, what Freud called parapraxis. But not just anyone's parapraxis, the king's parapraxis. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. After the first two episodes on memory earlier this season, I decided to do a third. It involves an odyssey. This odyssey took me from the pages of the Handbook of Psychobiography to a shrine in Tennessee, to the legendary Battery Studios in Times Square, and to the hushed offices of the New York Psychoanalytic Society, where I sat with Michelle Press in search of an answer to a simple question. What if a singer couldn't remember the words to a song, a song he'd sung a thousand times, particular parts of the song, the same part of the song over and over? What would that tell us about the singer? It was a term in German, faulty acts or faulty functions. It would be slips of the tongue. It could be misreadings, mishearings, but it's Freud's invention. Michelle Press is talking about parapraxis. From the Greek, para meaning abnormal, beyond, praxis meaning act, abnormal speech acts, or as they are more colloquially known, Freudian slips. Does Freud mean that there are no accidental slips or that if you look at the range of accidental slips, you can find meaning in some. So when you read him, he doesn't want to sound that kind of definitive. He'll say, yes, maybe one might prove that there are some that are truly accidental or truly a result of fatigue or of maybe some, you know, medical illness. But he said, if you do the work, one will find the reasons for this slip, that they're not accidental, that they have, he called it a sense and that that sense has to do with unconscious forces or unconscious ideas that are trying to find expression but are, because they're unacceptable, they emerge in these ways when one might be unguarded. Now, is that concept of unacceptability central to the notion of parapraxis? Yes. When I was a lad, an old ship was over hills 
1956, early in his career, Elvis Presley recorded a song called Old Shep. It's a sentimental song about a boy and his dog, Shep, written in the 1930s by Red Foley. The dog gets old and sick. The vet says there's no hope. The boy aims his rifle at Shep to put him out of his misery, but he can't pull the trigger. He lies down next to Shep, cradles him in his arms as the dog dies. And the song ends. Old Shelby has gone Where the good dog is gone And no more with old Shelby Will I roam But if dogs have a heaven There's one thing I know Old Shepard Old Shep is not one of Elvis's more famous songs, but in an essay published in 2005 on Elvis, the psychologists Alan Elms and Bruce Heller have an aside about a small but significant discrepancy between the original version of Old Shep and Elvis's cover. I'm going to come back to Heller and Elms in a while because they really do the most thorough analysis of Elvis's lyrical parapraxis. But let's start with Old Shep. Listen to Hank Snow performing the lyrics as they were originally written. The boy has just put away his gun, realizing he can't shoot Shep. So I threw down that old gun, ran right up to his side. He laid his faithful old head right on my knee. And friends, I stroked the best pal that a man ever found. I even cried so I scarcely could see. Now listen to Elvis sing his version. I had struck the best friend that a man ever had I cried so I scarcely could see Hank Snow sings I stroked the best pal a man ever found meaning that the boy considers an act of violence against his best pal then decides against it and takes instead the path of nurture and sympathy he recovers his humanity But Elvis sings, I had struck the best friend a man ever had, which turns the meaning of the song completely upside down. The boy does not recover his humanity. He now holds himself responsible for an act of violence against Shep, an act of violence that, in fact, he did not commit. Stroke becomes struck, and all of a sudden, a song about moral redemption turns into a song about morbid remorse. Now, I suppose you can say, Stroke, struck, whatever. Those two words sound the same. It's just a cover, but it's not just a cover. Elvis was obsessed with Old Shep. It's the first song he ever learned on the guitar. He played it incessantly as a child. At age 10, he played it at the Mississippi-Alabama Fair, his first public performance. He played it at his high school talent show and won. He played it on dates with girls. He played it well into his career. And why does the song resonate so much with him? 
It's a song about love, betrayal, and loss, themes that are at the center of Elvis's life. He's a twinless twin, someone whose twin died in utero, and he's obsessed by that fact. He brings it up again and again, the loss of someone who should have been his closest friend. Elvis's mother, Gladys, is, to say the least, unusual. She's controlling, intense. He calls her baby. Gladys died when Elvis was just 23. When he first saw her casket, he threw himself on top of her body, then stepped back and talked about how beautiful she was while pointing to her dead feet. He called them her little sooties. He did this again and again. At the end of the funeral service, he lay on top of her casket saying, I want to go with you. I don't want to stay here. I can't be without you. And we haven't even gotten to Priscilla, Elvis's wife. He spotted her when she was 14 and eventually convinced her to move in with him in Memphis. Once, Elvis took you to a morgue. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> this is Priscilla being interviewed by Barbara Walters in 1985. Why? Why that fascination? I, with I don't know. Bodies? I don't know what the fascination was. This is not the first time that he had done this. I don't know if it was for the shock value, you know, to see how people would react, or just um, for his own thrill of it. You wrote, there were times when you and Elvis spent days in the bedroom. Freezing bedroom, he liked it very cold. <laughs> the windows with blackout drapes so no sunlight entered. Day after day. Mm-hmm. It went into weeks, yes. We stayed like that. We had our food delivered uh, by the door. And... Um, it was cold. I mean, he did like it cold, and it was dark. And it could get real lonely. And that's, that's how he uh, liked it at times. Like a cocoon. Almost like a womb, I guess. You think? Priscilla and Barbara Walters are on a white couch, surrounded by pink flowers. Priscilla is in a strapless sundress. She looks amazing. Barbara Walters turns to her and says, Elvis controlled your looks, your clothes, your hair, your makeup. He controlled you totally. Priscilla says, yes, he did. Then. Six years you lived there before he decided to marry you. Mm -hmm. In those six years of sleeping with him every night, he never had intercourse with you. You wrote in your book that there were times when you begged him. (laughs) Six years of that? Priscilla, why? Well, again, you know, I can only go back to what his concept was as what he wanted in a woman. And somewhere he, uh, along in his past, he said that he wanted a virgin. Elvis is complicated. And what does Freud's theory of parapraxis say? That complicated feelings, inappropriate, maybe unacceptable feelings are normally suppressed. But every now and again, some little bit of that buried emotion slips out. And if you're paying attention and listening closely, that little slip can tell you something. Struck for stroke. But old Shep is just the beginning. For Elvis, the real parapraxis occurs in Are You Lonesome Tonight? a song originally written in the 1920s and which Elvis took to the top of the charts just after he came out of the army. 
Elvis at the RCA Studios on Music Row in Nashville, April 4th, 1960. The recordings from the original session now held in the Sony Music Archive. Yeah, this is, um, there's numerous takes here, so they fall apart, they make a mistake, and what have you. So. John Jackson and Vic Anasini from Sony, me, all listening together at the legendary Battery Studios in Manhattan, where everyone from John Lennon to Bruce Springsteen recorded. Holy ground. I started my quest at the very beginning. Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lonesome This is so amazing. Yeah. Is he, uh, when he records that, are the Jordanaires singing along with him or are they laying that track down separately? No, live. Oh, it's all live. Yeah, everything's live. live. Yeah. He always preferred to have everyone in one room and record live. Oh, even in one room, not in booths? No, 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 no. He hated booths. Recording the song was not Elvis's idea. It was a favorite of the wife of his manager, Tom Parker. In the studio, Elvis asked that the lights be turned off. So the room was in darkness. He did five takes. He didn't like any of them. It was four in the morning when he uh, recorded it. So he made everyone get out of the studio, go away, and then he just, you know, did it. Yeah. And then they, this was the second take, which they told him, oh, the background singers, you know, P-popped. We're going to have to, because he said, just stop the tape. You know, I'm done. They said, just do it once more because, you know, we had a P-pop on there. So the third take ends up being the master. Oh, I see. Elvis. And they held it, the label held it back for seven, eight months. It oh, they didn't more realize more. what they had on their hands. Yeah. It was seven months, I think, after he got recorded yeah. they finally released it as a single. And uh, didn't even go out. He had done eight songs uh, for Elvis's back. And uh, this was just like, yeah, just try this one. Recorded in the wee hours of the morning, in darkness, as a favor to someone else, a song neither Elvis nor his label particularly liked. It's almost like the song had a curse on it right from the beginning. And from then on, Elvis could never quite get it right. I talked about this with Michelle Prest at the New York Psychoanalytic Society. Elvis wasn't typically someone who forgot the words to the songs he sang. There's all these examples sort of his life of him being able to recite, to sing from memory, massive amounts of stuff. Um, mm. I'm worried, I'm interested about that. There's a little slip. I'm worried about it. I said, I, I said I'm worried about that. <laughs> I'm interested in that. And I'm wondering what the, what would you make of that as a psychoanalyst? I try to go on. But of course, I'm talking to a hardcore Freudian. I meant to say I was interested, but what came out was worried. I mean, I'm still caught on your slip obviously, thinking... What do you, what do you make of it? <laughs> so one thought was whether the slip might be a key to something that you're figuring out and puzzling with, with um, him. Because you're right now you're immersed in him. Oh, I am. I've been singing this song under my breath 
for months. I can't understand why. I've never been an Elvis fan. I don't own a single song of his. Or am I, am I drawn to this story because isn't this story that I'm talking to you the great anxiety of anyone in a creative field? That moment when you lose control, right? Where the, the presentation to the audience is unmasked. I want, to sh- I want to show you. I take out my laptop, pull up YouTube. There's a mountain of Elvis on YouTube. One of the last performances of his life. It's bananas. I mean, he just, it's, he's just singing a song he's sing thousands of times, and he just completely loses control of it. Oh, I can skip it. Okay, no, here, here it comes. Okay. I wonder if you're lonesome at night. You know, someone said, the world's a stage and each of us play a part. Play head me here and play in plus tags. You read your line so cleverly. You never missed a cue. Then came back too. You forgot the word. You seem to change, you fool. When I first saw it, it as someone in a, I mean, I'm not Elvis, but I'm someone in a creative field. It terrified me. It's like up on stage doing what he's paid to do, and he, he just. Every live performance he's ever given of this that we have on tape, mm-hmm. he mangles the bridge. Mm-hmm. He can't do it right. It's his, he's returning to the song again and again and again and again and again and doing the same kind Thing of. To the, in this particular, you know, it's, it's always a bridge. Of, so it's kind of like a the rap, singing part. Right? He's almost over. How many years did this go on? Years. Okay, in 1982, this uh, live inversion was a radio hit in the UK and reached number 25 on the British Singles uh, chart. At Battery Studios, I made the Sony guys play every version they had. They even have names, Laughing Elvis, Crazy Elvis, each one stranger than the one before. The world's a stage and each must play a part. <laughs> There's sweat and tears streaming down his face. <laughs> and I had no cause to dodge. <laughs> it goes on like this, on and on. Sing it, baby. <laughs> Shall I come again?
Have you ever played this song before? No, I never played it before. I, and it's funny, I played a bunch of um, check. I played a bunch of his stuff. Would you mind flipping the is it a standby switch on the back? I'm with Jack White at his studio in Nashville, Third Man Records. Jack White, formerly of the White Stripes, one of the great rock and rollers of his generation, and a huge Elvis fan. He's a shrine to Elvis in his hallway. Actual shrine. All that's missing is flowers. We met in his private office. Lots of black and yellow and leather and taxidermy. He sat on the couch with a guitar. Do you play, um... Do you play Elvis songs in concert? Sometimes I do, uh, like... What's that? Treat me like a... Treat me mean... Love me just the same. Treat me just the same. Oh, love me. I was gonna say, don't stop. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. <laughs> uh, anything? Any other ones you do? Oh, wait. By the way, why do you? Why that one? What's it about that song? Um, I had heard that early from a band called the Flat Duo Jets that I really liked, and, uh, and I didn't know uh, it was Elvis. And then when I had heard the Elvis version, I had connected the two, like, oh, now I'm going to do it. And I started doing it when I played in coffee houses. I started playing that. Oh, I was like 16, yeah, so that goes back. Which is funny, I'd, I'd eventually heard a story of Robert Plant uh, telling Elvis he loved that song when Led Zeppelin met Elvis, and then when they walked out, out of the hallway that Elvis poked his head out in the hallway and sang that song to Robert Plant. They sang it back to each other and were were crying and must have been an amazing moment. Jack White owns the original acetate pressing of Elvis's first recording from 1953, My Happiness. After we talked, White took me into his vault to show it to me. It's priceless. He asked me if I wanted to hold it. I was too terrified to say yes. Jack White seemed like the right person to see to try and understand Elvis's problem in Are You Lonesome Tonight? All right, let me see if I can take a crack. I might, might have to give her a couple whirls, but... Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Does your memory stray to a bright summer day when I kissed you and called you sweetheart? Do the chairs in your parlor seem empty and bare do you gaze at your doorstep and picture me there is your heart filled with pain shall i come back again tell me dear are you lonesome That's the first half of the song, the sung version, all questions. A man is wondering whether his lover misses him. 
Then comes the spoken bridge, in which the emotional tables are turned and the man leaves himself bare. Are You Lonesome Tonight has been recorded countless times over the years. A lot of performers leave out the bridge because it's corny and way too long and hard. Elvis kept it in. So does Jack White. I wonder if you're lonesome tonight. You know, someone said that the world's a stage and each must play a part. Fate had me playing in love with you as my sweetheart. Act one was where we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. Then came act two. You seemed to change, you acted strange, and why I've never known. Honey, you lied when you said you loved me, and I had no cause to doubt you. But I'd rather go on hearing your lies than to go on living without you. Now the stage is bare, and I'm standing there with emptiness all around. And if you won't come back to me, Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lonesome tonight? Whoa! <laughs> Wait, you 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 enjoyed that? <laughs> I did. It gets. I gets. Uh, there's some nice parts where it gets the. Uh, you can see uh, playing that live. Now that I just did that, like, well, we just did that. I played it once yesterday, like, reading this. Uh-huh. But now playing it like that, I could see, wow, live, you could really, that really could get to be a really emotional song. So I didn't really think about it until just then. What led you to think that just now? Because um, it feels like, well, it's in a minor, it's got a lot of minor chords, so that, that that's already gets you in, in that melancholy vibe. But it has, it has that... Um, what just occurred to me now is he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't really care that if she's lonesome it's if he's lonesome mm-hmm. the, the singer is lonesome mm-hmm. and it's a it's a MacGuffin to to pretend like I'm I'm worried about you mm-hmm. uh, are you lonesome tonight you know but it's really he's the singer is worried about himself so that could be um, you know you, you take that kind of emotional song and you put years and years on stage and then you put drugs in the mix and then mm-hmm. in your own state of mind at the time it could be a re- you you could be onto something there it could be a real diversion that it's too powerful to, to what's, sing what's fascinating is the, the 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 sung parts the singer is in control and he's worried about her right the right. spoken parts the singer is vulnerable and yeah. he's confessing his own and it's so screwed up it's like I know you lied to me and I wish you hadn't. Right. I wish I didn't know that you lied to me because I'd rather be in the state of being deceived than know the truth, which is like right. 17 convolutions of neuroticism. Right. <laughs> is he still, he's still blaming her most of the lines. He's still, still pointing the finger. White says you can't run from that kind of emotion, not if you're singing the song properly. And so when he writes songs, he tries to establish some distance between himself and the feelings he's singing about. I try to 
push it into a character standpoint rather than it being a, a self uh, confession confessional for me because I think that would be really hard to consistently keep living that moment over and over and over again. I've definitely seen older artists ignoring certain parts of their certain songs in their career because it's probably too close to home about something or other. But you can't avoid a song's emotional effects all the time, and especially not when you have to read a soliloquy in the middle of it, which is what the Are You Lonesome Bridge is, a speech parachuted into the heart of the song. I had a little flub moment at one point trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, it's a waltz. You know, you, you have that, um, so if I'm like, I wonder if two, three, so one, two, three, one, two, three, two, three. So your, your brain kind of wants to go, I wonder if you're lonesome tonight. That's what your brain wants to do. And you know someone said that the world's a stage and we must each play a part. Then it starts to get, oh, that's oh, kind of Oh, I see, it breaks do. down. Yeah, I mean, it would, I, mean I, would, I can definitely say that this would be a lot easier if someone else was playing guitar and I could just recite uh, that part. Wait, should I recite it while you play the guitar? Yeah, let's do that. So yeah. we do that? Great, yeah. I'm not going to torture you with my rendition of the Spoken Bridge. Well, maybe later. I'm just saying... Until I die, I can say I play with Jack White. And then, because how many opportunities am I going to get like this? I asked Jack White to help me edit the soliloquy. If one were to rewrite it, I'm thinking you, that you, uh, you lose the first three lines. Mm. Fate had me playing in love, you as my sweetheart. Or even, act one was when we met. Why, not, why don't they just start with Act One? I do that. Act One was where we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so carefully, never missed a cue. What did I do there? You said carefully instead of cleverly, which is a clever, beautiful phrase. Never missed a cue. Then came Act Two. You seemed to change. You acted strange. What? did Jack White do there? The actual lyric is, you read your lines so cleverly. He said, you read your lines so carefully. Carefully for cleverly. A man singing one of the songs of his musical idol comes to the emotionally complex center. And what do we hear? A moment of vulnerability. Can he be as clever as Elvis? He's not sure. He must be careful. Parapraxis. Sometimes, you know, I love, I love him so much and, and that, uh, you know, I'm afraid to learn more about certain things. Like, it, 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 you know, when it's so, you're so close to it and you've experienced certain things about, you know, nothing in comparison to what he went through, but you, you're in the same, we're, we do the same kind of thing. We, we perform and we go on stages and we make records and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm from a different time period, but you notice these tiny little moments that are, when you when you see certain people, oh, I know exactly what that's about. I know exactly what that feels like. There are 10 known live recordings of Elvis performing Are You Lonesome Tonight? Starting in 1961, in a concert at Block Arena in Honolulu, up to the end of Elvis's life in 1977. Alan Elms and Bruce Heller analyzed them all in their essay, 
12 Ways to Say Lonesome, Assessing Error and Control in the Music of Elvis Presley. Elms and Heller find that Elvis performs the sung portion of Are You Lonesome Tonight more or less flawlessly, because the sung portion is the part of the song where the singer is in control. But in the spoken bridge, the narrator is suddenly the one who's been deceived and rejected. And that's the part Elvis can't get right. Elms and Heller count a total of 109 errors in those 10 live performances of the spoken bridge, 29 of which involve just four lines. I loved you at first glance, where he confesses the depths of his feelings. You seemed to change, you acted strange, where he testifies to his betrayal and rejection. And why I've never known, where he expresses his feelings of anger and victimization. And with emptiness all around, where he admits to his loneliness. The most problematic renditions of the bridge are the later ones, which come after the summer of 1972. What happens in the summer of 1972? And one day you went in and said, I'm leaving. There was another man in your life then. Mm-hmm. He was your karate teacher, right. Mike Stone. Mm-hmm. And you went off then and lived with him. Yeah. Priscilla Presley, back on the couch with Barbara Walters, America's primetime Freudian. It was said that Elvis tried to kill him or wanted him killed. Right. Do you believe that? I think at that time, yes, he did. He wanted that to happen. I do the chairs in your parlor seem empty and bare. Do you gaze at your ball head and wish you had hair? It's filled with pain. Shall I come back? <laughs> Tell me, dear, are you lonesome? <laughs> oh, Lord, Lord. I <laughs> A man who fears betrayal and abandonment is betrayed and abandoned. <laughs> and I had no cause to die. <laughs> It's too much. He's a wreck. Swing it, baby. <laughs> Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lonesome? <laughs> After I left Jack White, I went to see Bobby Braddock, just down the street at the Sony Studios on Nashville's Music Row. This was just tuned. Good. You may remember Bobby Braddock from season two of Revisionist History. He's the legendary songwriter I called the King of Tears. Braddock wanted to introduce me to a good friend of his, a singer-songwriter named Casey Bowles. Come on. That's the church across the Alto. 30-something, long red hair, the kind of person who, if you touch... You expect a little jolt of static. It'll work. Oh, you want to sing that song? Oh, but you want me to sing that song? We were in the biggest of the Sony recording studios on the main floor, in a corner where the piano was. Casey sang Are You Lonesome Tonight 
with Bobby on the piano. Then we sat, and they talked about Nashville. They talked about how they both grew up in the Church of Christ, the most strict of Southern fundamentalist denominations. And they talked about Elvis. My dad thought he was Elvis, I think. (laughs) Yeah, he he really, he was a Church of Christ song leader and really wanted to be a Jordanaire, badly. And um, so Ray Walker was one of the Jordanaires, and he tried to emulate him by way of dress and hairstyle. And um, so I grew up either hearing him say, hello, darling, nice to see you, or doing this sort of, you know, is it vaudeville style or just just sort of a um, over-the-top modeling style, I guess. Is modeling the way you'd say it? Modeling? Then Bobby Braddock started talking about recitations, the spoken part in many older country songs. And he made the same point that Jack White did, that they're much easier if they're set to music, if you could just as easily sing them, like on one of Braddock's most famous songs, He Stopped Loving Her Today. The recitation like... She came to see him one last time. Oh, we all wondered if she would. Yeah, and you could sing that. She came to see him one last time. Oh, we all wondered if she would. And that works either way. But this uh, is just like, uh, uh, we got this song, let's get a recitation, throw it in there. And, and Elvis made it work. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking just instinctively, just because he was, uh, he was just so good. Recitations are unusual these days. Braddock hasn't written one since something he did for Toby Keith in the 1990s. Last successful recitation song I had was actually, <laughs> it was act, well, actually it was it was it was a hip hop thing. I want to talk about me, but that, <laughs> that, but that was talking, talking, See? talking. See, Toby Keith, that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. But, but it was, you know, it's all. Wait, can you, you you can you can you play a little slice of that? Do you remember? Oh, I can pretend gosh, like I'm Toby I, Keith. I, I never do Whirl. that. I never do that. Why do that? I always I always do it with, with with a karaoke thing where I get up there and, and play the thing. Wanna talk about me, wanna talk about I, wanna talk about number one. Or that's, you talk about your work, how your boss is a jerk, you talk about your church and your head and hurts. Talk about the trouble you've been having with your mother and your daddy with your brother and your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex lover, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then but it fits it, that. And, and then the menstrual menstrual period line, which everybody said, you can't put that in a song, nobody'll ever cut it, you know, and it was one of the biggest songs they ever had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> About your medical charts and when you start. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Take that out. Nobody will record it. <laughs> Toby Keith did. <laughs> He's probably the only one who would have, though. Mm-hmm. Then I showed them the prize. I brought it in my bag. My copy of the Handbook of Psychobiography containing the Heller and Elms essay. Hold on. I have my book here. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. To a pair of Elvis fanatics, it was like I'd unearthed the Dead Sea Scrolls. What's the book? It's a book called Handbook of Psychobiography, and it has an essay on this song. Wow, psychobiography. And so, yeah, so here's, so this guy has gone through, he made a chart of all all of the lyrical mistakes that Elvis made in every known live recording 
of... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. These were two songwriters, and I felt they immediately saw themselves in that chart. Do you find yourself making the kind of errors sometimes, even subtle ones that you know, we've been talking about? That's so interesting. I wrote a song about my mother called Somebody Something, and my mother is adorable. And I, whenever you heard about things going wrong or like some tumultuous story, it was my dad. And so I finally was like, you know what? Why are we the only person in the family that there's nothing I haven't written about? So I was trying to dig dirt on her and there was nothing. <laughs> and so I ended up writing this song about her called Somebody Something. And I cry every time I do it. And there is a line that says, you know, she's always been somebody something. She's lived every life but her own. Um, and it's gone. I can't remember it right now. I don't know that feeling. I can't remember it. Yeah. She's always been somebody, sometimes been everything but alone. A daughter, a mother, a life, a daughter, a lover, a wife and a mother. She's lived every life but her own. Yes, yeah, she's always been somebody, something. And there's a line that says, you know, she she wonders what it might be like to be somebody else. And she wonders what it feels like to be free but she's always imagined being nobody's nothing, and that's something she'd never want to be. But right. that line usually is just Aww. gone, and um, a lot of times I'll go, hold on, and divert and tell a funny story really quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, wow. what's the, the specific line that's gone is which one? Uh, well, it's gone again. Um, she's always been somebody something. She's been everything but alone. Daughter, a lover, a, a daughter, a lover, a wife, and a mother. She's been everything but alone. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Why is it that line? I don't know. I think that, um, I don't know. I think when you, you would, she's so, uh, when you see somebody give, so much of themselves, and that's truly the only thing that she will ever experience, and I think it's what I've experienced the most of. A minute before, we were joking about Toby Keith. Now Casey is pensive as she compares her mother's life to her own. Not being able to make a relationship work the first 18,000 times out of the gate, or, you know, officially the first two, and um, not being a mother, and, you still know. real close to her, right? Yeah, love her. Go, go to, She's go to wonderful. Go to, go to church with her, right? I do. I sit still because she makes me, and I stay awake, and it's good. Yeah. Funny, when I was when I was a kid, if I, I'd get bored in church, and my mother would reach down and pinch me. You know? Oh, I got smacked. <laughs> Wait, Casey, can you play that song for us? Or is it going to be too? Let's see. Okay. Okay, well, we'll see if this happens. Shoot, hold on. There's a line about Elvis in this. That's just random. Hold on. Dream and see she Hollywood. I'm going to do it again. She... What did I just say? Sorry, I'm thinking about mom. She grew up playing cowgirl. She grew up playing cowgirl. In a railroad town 
someday She knew some distant Friday night With a cigarette to hold just right Fate would come and carry her away As, as far as she could see from there Those were just the facts of the That's not right Hold one second. My first reaction to Casey's failure of memory was to be embarrassed for her, worried that she had lost control. That's the way we're trained to think. Just listen to the words I've just used. Failure. Embarrassed. Worried. In one way or another, that's what this season of revisionist history has been about, about the ways we judge each other for our mistakes and choices. The easiest thing in the world is to look at those mistakes and condemn. The much harder thing is to look at those mistakes and understand. She married in December, maybe water, in a dress her mama made. She looked all grown up standing there like that. Had a honeymoon in Memphis town. Yeah, she looked for Elvis all around. Just the facts of life. You went from somebody's daughter to somebody's wife. Parapraxis is not failure. When the performer slips, the audience is not cheated. It's the opposite. Parapraxis is a gift. I presented myself as interested in this story. But now you know that this subject doesn't just interest me, it worries me. Losing control is my great anxiety. When Jack White said, carefully, instead of cleverly, it was a hint that playing Elvis wasn't a trivial matter for him. It was a sacred act, carefully, full of care. And Elvis, after the loss of Priscilla, sang a song he'd sung a thousand times, only now in a way that gave the audience a window on his pain. Mistakes reveal our vulnerabilities. They are the way the world understands us, the way performers make their performances real. So Bobby Braddock and I sat there, listening to Casey sing. Tears in her eyes, fumbling to remember the lyrics of a song about her mother. Fumbling not because her mother didn't matter to her, but because she did. She's always been somebody something.
It's beautiful. Why are you covering your mouth? I'm just, it's just weird. Because I've never, it's just weird when you're thinking about what it is. Like, I just thought, oh, bad memory, too many songs, old, too many songs in there. But at any point in time, I could pull out a rap from New Edition from 1982. Like, why is that in there? And something that you wrote is not in there. That is so weird. It's not weird. A lesser person would have sung it perfectly. Thank you for listening to season three of Revisionist History. The senior producer is Mia LaBelle with Jacob Smith and Camille Baptista. Our editor is Julia Barton. Flan Williams is our engineer. Fact-checking by Beth Johnson. Original music by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to Kim Green and Hal Humphreys of Storyboard EMP in Nashville. And here in New York, thanks to Jason Gambrell, Evan Viola, Rachel Strom, Nicole Bunsis, Kristen Meinzer, Carly Migliori, Andy Bowers, and of course, as always, El Jefe, Jacob Weisberg. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. I wonder if you're lonesome tonight. You know, someone said that the world's a stage and each must play a part. Fate had me playing in love. You was my sweetheart. Act one was when we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. Then came act two. You you seemed to change and you acted strange. And why, I'll never know. Honey, you lied when you said you loved me and I had no cause to doubt you. But I'd rather go on hearing your lies than go on living without you. Now the stage is bare and I'm standing there with emptiness all around. And if you won't come back to me, then make them bring the curtain down. How am I doing? Nice, very good. (laughs) I wasn't, I'm not very musical. No, it's very good, it's good. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this special kickoff for what we're calling Revisionist Revisited. If you're still here, remember, you can vote for your favorite episode. Visit pushkin.fm and vote between now and April 20th. Then stay tuned for the next Revisionist Revisited episode on May 14th. Until then, be safe and well. I'm Malcolm Clapham.